0: What's
1: up, everybody? Welcome to Vlogcast episode number 10. As you can see, it is me coming with the intro today instead of our fine Dominican friend, Chin. He is on vacation, enjoying the beaches, the sun, the sand. Uh, And I'm joined today by my good friend, Nick Howard. Uh, You're actually going to be filling in for the next couple of weeks, I believe. So um, before we dive in and kind of give your backstory and and how you arrived in the co-host seat... Let me clean a little house and um, just kind of get out of the way. We have our next academy coming up September 1st. It's the MTT Academy. Still a few seats available. Uh, September 4th is going to be our next cash academy. And we're also giving away a seat to each. Can you believe this? Wow. It's madness, right? Um, So for those of you who are still looking to win a seat, uh, submissions are open until August 18th. They've been pouring in. And I got to tell you, the last few have been really good. I'm kind of shocked at uh, what the internet can do when you give them a free reign. All right, man. A few words. <laughs> um, um, all right, so just to give a little bit of background of like how this came to be, I guess. Uh, I I've been watching your stuff, or I started watching your stuff on Run It Once, like back whenever I was just coming out of being broke. Um, I remember one of the first videos I stumbled upon was like Garrett Adelstein's, uh, like really heavily exploded of this is what makes for a good live player, and I was just like, God damn. This guy gets me, but he shouldn't be telling people this. Mm. Because, like, you know, that had been what I really poured myself into is like the live realm and all of the edges that can be curated just by being able to look someone in the face. And I thought Garrett did a really good job of summarizing that. Uh, And I remember at the time, you and Sauce were kind of like the faces of the GTO movement. And I was like, I really like this stuff. I get it. Like, I have a math background. It seems interesting, but it seems like a little much and then in 2015 i think i was in bay bay 101 and christian was with me and he's like yo you guys see the new nick howard video and at this point i'd like stopped watching training videos like what i was doing was working and i was like really formulating a plan and it felt good i was like all right yeah i'll check it out like i've always thought his stuff was good and it was just this like almost diary of you looking at the camera just like basically saying hey you're all doing it wrong. The paradigm has shifted. Like uh, None of us are robots. This whole believing in some sort of dogmatic approach that you could just plug in a bunch of variables and get spit back out on output isn't going to work. And I was like, oh, we got to get a hold of this guy.
2: <laughs> you called me too.
1: Yeah. Like right after it. Yeah.
2: Um, and I didn't know who you were because I'm not in the live arena at all. Um, but I remember that first conversation because it seemed like we were both on the same train in terms of that this approach is actually futile. Somehow you knew that without doing all the same stuff that I did. Um, I think your intuition for it is just probably more heightened than most. But looking back on that whole stage, I don't think I did anything all that special. I think what I did was work harder with the solvers up front than most people did. And I hit burnout faster. Yeah. So I was able to make that video saying like, you guys can go down this path, which the community still is mm. two or three years later. Uh, but I was pretty confident that I had reached the limits
1: of practical execution with the solvers and it wasn't what everybody was making it out to be. So, I, I mean, I, I think that it's important to to get the message right. I don't think either one of us are saying that solvers are not important or offering any sort of value. What What do you think that, like... The community gets wrong when it comes to utilizing these tools i think there's a a very contracted
2: focus on well what they can provide i think there's a incomplete picture of what the solvers usefulness actually is and i think that stemmed from the community being in a really defensive place when the solver bubble sort of burst everybody wanted to feel the safety of an optimal solution because we really had nothing before right. the solvers. Like right. if you really think back, like it was basically like a community in the dark. And the idea was that the solver bubble turned the lights on. And it was a nice idea. Yeah. But realistically what happened is we entered a very, very complex domain in Solverland that we weren't able to actually bring back to practical execution in game. And I think there's a certain amount of denial going on around that still. Um But for the most part, that denial, I think, is what keeps people trapped in the overly complex attempt to use information that just cannot be practically implemented unless you're one of the top three players in the world or some sort of savant status. Um, and, And this is the thing that I would throw out right away. Like There's a very easy way to approach this as a thought problem if you've been using solvers for over a year diligently and you haven't soared through the ranks. I think it's safe to assume that you're not that savant type player. So let's do the next most rational thing and start to reassess how we can start to simplify stuff. Um, so I wasn't against solvers at all. I was initially I was looking for a, a way to simplify what they were doing so I could actually have a practical system. Sure. Um,
1: yeah, I, I think that there's a few things I kind of want to touch on that you, you uh kind of alluded to um first i want to say like it's almost divisive in a sense where now i think people think that like either you use solvers or you don't and whichever camp you fall into you're all in so those who are just like the live people who have been field players their entire career are making fun of the online kid, and that's crazy because like being ignorant to more information is never going to uh result in like better calibration or anything along those lines you're a data guy you get it um But on the other side, it's just like to be dismissive of all the other variables of information that we're able to accumulate uh, seems like we're putting a lot of eggs in one basket and just like praying that, you know, we didn't fuck this up and get it wrong. Yeah, we did. Uh, Well, we stayed on the same train for too
2: long, in my opinion. And now we've dug ourselves a very deep hole that's harder to get out of than it would have been six months after the solver bubble burst, mainly because people are invested in the paradigm now. Mm-hmm. And that's a very real thing. When that happens, when people invest massive amounts of time in a a methodology that they feel like has the Holy Grail embedded in it, weird things start to happen where denial sets in. Um, I mean, every conversation I have with somebody who's all in on the PO solver basket, I leave thinking that guy's in a very vulnerable position right Right. now because unless he's willing to completely sack a good chunk of his paradigm, he may be pushed out of the game just through his own insistence on a path that really doesn't map to where he wants to go. Yeah.
1: It's almost a sense of like willful ignorance. Like, you know, you can see that a guy is just never bluffing in a spot, but you willfully choose to ignore it in order to uh, then fall back on the studied spot. Um, I, I think that, just going back to that concept of only a certain amount of elite uh, savants are able to apply this in a way that is, uh, is very profitable, I guess, in, in game and things like that. I think that even that is not necessarily true. Um, and we kind of saw this. Uh, I'm a little bit older than you, so like I've been around longer. We saw this with the advent of any technology, right? So when CREV came into the market and people started running like much more precise uh, equity calculations, well, that was an advancement from just doing straight hand-versus-hand equity, right? So basically, the game had evolved from a hand-versus-hand thinking into a hand-versus-range thinking. And that was monumental, right? The first ascension. Yeah. And there was massive resistance, right? All the guys who've been live field players are just saying, like, uh, I don't need to know the math. This is crazy, man. Like, there are people that... I consider to be very good players who probably couldn't tell you the difference between EV and equity right now, but they're in the live realm, so they're a little bit protected because their instincts are sharp enough from repetitions yeah. to just have like a decent feel. And yeah, they're overfolding and overcalling in some spots, but not to a detriment where they're they're losing their bottom line. Um, and I think conversely, like the people who are always all in on those new technological paradigms, they're definitely ahead of it. And they're putting themselves in a situation to increase their bottom line. But I think the problem is, um, and I just read a fascinating article that uh, we'll put in the show notes. But it was basically, um, it was written in 2017. And it's this uh, new, I guess, examination of Nash equilibrium. And basically the way that it breaks it down is that uh, John Nash was correct in that an equilibrium will exist in pretty much all... Uh, 1v1 type of game settings uh, and most likely still exist in all multiplayer game settings. But where he may have gotten it wrong is the ability to obtain it. And I think that that's the paradigm that we're all buying into that's fundamentally false, is that we're just being spit out what a, Nash, uh, a perfect Nash equilibrium is. And that's untrue. Um, the, the way that they framed it is uh, they, they wrote the article based on economics. And they basically said, like, um, you know, simple Nash equilibriums are easy to, to reach. And the example they gave is if you like Chinese food and I like Indian food, but our strongest preference is to dine together, then the Nash equilibrium would be that we just go to an Indian place together or go to a Chinese place together. But if there were 100 of us with those two binary options and all of us wanted to arrive at dining together it would just be sheer happenstance that that iteration ever came to be true. So um, I think like the big issue with diving so hard into the idea that this machine will just tell us how to play perfectly is not only the fact that we can never mimic it and actually play perfectly, but that the quote-unquote perfect play is based on a vacuum against someone else who's also playing perfectly. And... It's not even,
2: okay, so I I think those two go together really well. I think that for you to stare at a grid and buy into the fact that it's perfect to begin with is already slightly vulnerable, but let's just even give it the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. I get what you're saying, but even if we do give it to the, the benefit of the doubt, the problem that I really see with how people study is they're looking towards data. And not just PO, like we do different types of data and people still mess it up. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's presented a grid or data and told that the answer lies in there, they start to stare at it so closely with the intention to memorize it that the portion of the mind that's responsible for rational thought actually just becomes atrophied Right, and they can't use it. So going back to, to connect the dot here, I'm almost on board with you that we don't even know that somebody like Jungle is memorizing Sims like to the frequency and that right, maybe right. maybe maybe he's just so ahead that he stared at so many of them and he has the capacity to remember what frequencies for each hand. Maybe. But maybe he's someone who's just really good with Sims and also is really good at thinking rationally. And I think right. this is the this is where we have to start to bridge the two dimensions between the analytical and the intuitive plane because right now like I run a team of players that is they're very clearly split between guys that are succeeding with a data driven approach which is not so much different than, than PO. It's right. just we've distilled it into something that's more practical yeah, and more incentivized for pool imbalances. But we see them either on the side of getting it and floating up to high stakes or struggling really bad. And when you look deeply into the mindsets of the players that are struggling and the players that are winning, the thing that seems to come up more than anything is that the players who are losing seem to lack the capacity to think rationally when the situation changes slightly. Right. So I would love to go into this if you think that's valuable because I think it's the biggest difference between... Something stands out to me that's very important. If you hand two guys the same exact resources, one guy succeeds and one guy fails, there's a very important understanding to gain from that dynamic. Mm -hmm. What's causing this guy to fail in execution, assuming they're both studying and integrating? So for me, the, the fascinating thing about that has been to find that it is a meltdown in the arena of performance that's largely responsible for whatever system you are studying to not work and i think we need to validate po great tool yeah can get you close to balance in certain places and it gives you a better understanding of how equilibrium shifts and all that stuff but if you're using it as a as a resource to cover up almost like a band-aid your core insecurity, you're going to get in performance and just self-destruct because the situation is not the same as what you studied and it does
1: require you to calibrate. Yeah. I I think that uh, you've touched upon mindset and I I think that that's something pretty critical to go further into. Um, Basically the way that I see it is the way that PO is able to be utilized as a tool to strip down the data-driven approach, to strip down uh, the, the, core principles that drive this game that drive the chaos theory that is the complex system of poker psychology and mindset is exactly that same framework for the complex system that is the human mind right and we know far less about that than we do the actual construct of poker which to be very clear we should also be open and say like we almost know nothing about you know it's it's this narrative that's being pushed that like oh machines are beating six-handed poker now and and, you know, uh, the, the the end is near and all this other stuff. It's like, well, in a lot of ways, if we strip that down and look at what's going on with these uh, AI simulations that are, that are kind of c- coming in and winning, they're winning because we're humans and we're flawed, not because they're necessarily that far ahead. They're able to do a lot of iterations and calculations that we can't do in real time. And they are absolutely motionless to the risk at hand. So if they see a spot that's a one percenter, but the frequencies justify taking it, they just do. You know, and as humans, psychology and, and data don't often align very well. So I think it's very critical to develop a method of study and a method of strategy that can correlate the two and find the best balance rather than trying to ignore one and dive wholeheartedly into the other. So let's do this. Let's just for fun. Let's lay out the two major
2: leaks of the current online demographic because that's where I play. Okay. Very simply put, the population overfolds. So if we know that, then we can start to look at the people that we have more information on, like the players that we're closest to, that we can start to ask questions to. And what we find is that it's something about the inability to accurately assess risk Mm -hmm. that's causing that tendency to take place. And I think when you start to really talk to someone, like I had a conversation with my players the other day, the guys that aren't doing well, um, given a methodology that says execute these patterns, when we look at their samples, we see that they're 10% under the amount that they should be calling rivers in certain spots. Yeah, Not surprising, considering that's the main leak of the pool. Mm-hmm. We should assume that our players are going to have the same leaks that the pool has, but it is an insight into what the core malfunction of the mindset is. And I think we're getting close to understanding that it is the inability to get the subconscious mind on board with how to navigate risk, especially in a pot odds model that causes the overfolding to take place because let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they know if we ask them away from the table, they know what they should be doing. They know the pattern. They know they should be calling. But when a nuanced part shows up in game, when a nuanced example of that pattern shows up in game, they start to rationalize that I'm going to fold this time. Why do they do that?
1: Right. Well, I I think a lot of that has to stem from a lack of confidence, right? Because there's going to be plenty of sims that are going to have you calling like king-queen high out of position on an ace-high board dry, right? And the issue with that isn't that you have to pull that trigger and call that street. You can understand that you're making a fundamentally plus EV call on that street. The problem is the compounding effect. You're just very unclear from that point forward how king-queen now operates on all the iterations of turns. And like in what way you're supposed to aggress, in what way you're just supposed to bluff catch with King-Queen-High here from multiple streets. And all of this problem set changes when you're not talking about a 1v1 scenario. And I don't mean that the pot's not heads-up post. I mean that the pot wasn't heads-up to begin with, right? Ranges are very different when somebody opens under the gun eight-handed than it is if it's blind versus blind. And I I think that that becomes just too overwhelming. It's a good word for it, I think, because... Really, the
2: reason that the PO approach doesn't work is that even if you do get well-versed in the frequencies or mixed strategies that you want to play, mm-hmm. when you insert that into the performance realm, right. under performance pressure, yep. you will constantly rationalize to fold more unless your mindset is strong. Yeah, And I think most of the community, it would be safe to say, is in a GTO-esque paradigm, which means that we're looking at hundreds of millions of hands of data that says that the online pool is overfolding when the online pool is primarily functioning from a GTO paradigm. Right. So clearly it's not being implemented correctly. And I think the value there is in seeing that the reason this is falling apart in practice is because you think you have a grasp on something approximately. You think you understand the P.O. solve. Mm-hmm. But because you have mindset issues, you're rationalizing every time. Right. Or on average, you're rationalizing for risk aversion.
1: Right. Well, let's just look at where it fails, right? And it fails with the human mind because we're, we aren't a simple operating system or maybe a, a, a calibrated operating system the way that a computer would be. Every decision we make has a confidence interval to it, right? We, we certainly aren't making any decisions ever, almost never, with 100% certainty, especially in this game, right? Sometimes when you have the nuts, why does it feel so good if we, if we just distill this down to a human feeling, right? Why does it feel so good and relieving and exciting to just have the nuts. Zero risk. Zero risk, yes. But 100% confidence. Certainty. Yeah, there is no doubt whatsoever what the outcome is going to be. We carry that doubt through each and every single decision that we make through a nuanced game that's going to require tens of thousands of decisions in just a, a few sessions or a handful of hours, let alone over a career. Like we might make multiple million decisions where our confidence is going to range somewhere from like 30% to 60 or 70. So no matter how much we try to mimic, the reason why everybody dove into the data and was like so pumped to start to see the basically the answers in the back of the book is because it gives this false bravado. It boosts this level of confidence. But the fact is, if you're actually not implementing with the same confidence that you feel, now mistakes are taking place at a grand uh, rate. So this is a problem that doesn't get solved
2: Even if you have better tools, this problem still exists. So let's talk about it in in two different ways, because I think right now I did it the PO solver way. Mm -hmm. And currently we're doing it the population data way, which just gives more exposure to pool imbalances by using real hands and mapping them. PO doesn't implement because you can't remember the frequencies exactly of every single spot. And most things are a mixed strategy. Yep. So it ends up falling apart in practice because you just can't remember. Right. And if you have mindset issues, you're going to default risk averse. Mm-hmm. Now, even if I give you a more accurate methodology for exploiting the market that you're in, which is a data-driven approach that uses real hands, you're going to come into the performance realm with certain patterns that you're trying to execute, but it's never going to be exactly the same pattern. It's going to be nuanced right. every time. Yep. And what we see when that occurs, when that nuance presents itself, the student finds a way to find what he's looking for, which he wants to find the fold right. subconsciously. Yep. And the way he does that is by saying, the pattern isn't exactly the same as what I studied. Therefore, I don't have enough confidence mm-hmm. to make the call or right. to execute the pattern. And the interesting thing about this is that the student seems to think that by not being decisive in that moment, that he's being rational, right? By just throwing his hands up and saying, not enough information to invest here. I can't make this rational leap that the pattern's close enough that I should still execute, even though it's not exact. By him backing down and not making that rational decision, he actually does the most risky thing he can do, which is become risk averse and put himself on a trajectory where now he's just overfolding and getting run over.
1: Right. And there's two things I want to say about this. First and foremost, we should recognize that nobody is immune to this. Like we're speaking from some sort of like pedestal here where this doesn't occur to us. No, not at all. I could put you under an amount of performance under pressure and myself where this would happen. Or just put me into paradigms that I'm uncertain in, right? Even even if I don't necessarily have a default trigger to be risk averse, maybe I'm the exact opposite. And now you could put me in paradigms where like I'm overly risking. And I'm just punting off money that way. It's, it's what the big issue with the community is how critical the onlooker is. Whenever they have perfect information and they're trying to get inside the minds of two players who have nearly no information whatsoever. It's, it's very toxic in nature and it's created this great divide where, again, the people who will just say, like, point to the data and say, well, if you run this in a solve, like that's an absolute massive punt. It's like, yeah, okay, but this person is literally in game, in real time, trying to adhere to his environment and take in as many variables as possible. So the second point that I want to make, which probably is even more important, is that um, instead of studying macro strategies, people are, are buying into the micro. And that is preying upon their human error and their lack of confidence. And it's creating this vicious learning cycle that people just have an inability to escape. And, you know, at at, at onset, when I developed Solve for Why, and, you know, it's still our maxim today, we're not trying to teach poker strategy per se, right? We're trying to teach people a better framework of thinking so that they can look at this holistically. And... Put themselves in a position to be versatile whenever the pattern does change or disrupt, or the environment more importantly, changes or disrupts. Or one particular player, you know, it's evident when somebody goes on tilt. There's nothing fixed into PO that deals with tilt, right? But like that's what we as human beings excel at is being able to read an environment, take in all of that information, run it through some sort of biased filter, and then execute to the best of our interests and even if you are good at calibrating
2: and observing like this is much more important than live i'm sure if somebody yeah. goes on tilt it's probably more obvious even if you're good at all that i still think you could be hijacked if you have mindset issues that default
1: well i think all of us can be hijacked just because at the end of the day we're all operating on an exploitative realm even the absolute best gto player out out, whoever it may be. Even if we go as far as talking about like Kalotico, the best GTO bots or whatever, it's still operating in an exploitative realm. We, we haven't nailed down what that absolute perfect strategy is for every single scenario in Hold'em, and we, we almost never will. I think the important thing is is to steer into your confidence, right? So if you recognize that somebody's on tilt, Maybe that will be a trigger for you to start playing more hands against that person, to aggress harder against that person, to put yourself in a paradigm that according to your box strategy is maybe incorrect or maybe, uh, outside the constructs of quote unquote good by the judging public eye. But the reality is you're just going to get that money more frequently than anybody else at the table because you're challenging him. Assuming you execute
2: yes, in the way that you observed. Right. And this is what I was talking to about Haunt yesterday, um we did this call with the struggling players on my team and I came away from it in the execs chat saying what I learned from this call is that people are going to find what they're looking for. Mm. And it's an abstract thing, but it's also quite simple that like if you go in with a risk averse mentality looking to find reasons to not invest because you associate investment with a faster road to potential ruin, which I think a lot is a lot of what's going on. Yeah. You ask somebody why they don't call in a spot where they know they should call yeah. with a bluff catcher. And they tell you, because I don't want to see the guy turn over a better hand. Do you, is, look at, do you look at him and just say, good? Well, I'm not usually face-to-face in these conversations, but right. I'm, taking these, I'm taking notes on this, and I'm trying to ask better and better questions each time. This one yesterday was really helpful because I went really deep with them on this, and I said, okay, so do you understand consciously that when you get two-to-one or three-to-one, you could lose the pot the vast majority of the time and still be printing money. I say, yeah, my conscious mind gets that. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, so it must be something going on deeper, a belief that we haven't uprooted yet. So I say, what is it that really scares you about making that call? They say, the impact of the opponent turning over a better hand in that moment. So something about the subconscious is not able to contextualize risk the conscious mind gets the pot odds model but the subconscious mind when it hears that it has a plus ev call available yeah. really expects to win that pot when it's pressing call right and it's setting you up for a world of cognitive dissonance since you're only supposed to win that maybe a
1: third of the time Yep. Um, so I, I spoke to this about uh i spoke about this with chin last week where our mind's just not built for variance we just don't understand it right we we distill things down to the poles so if we are an 80-20 favorite, we win all the time. If we are an 80-20 dog, well, then we can keep hope, right? So the 20% represents hope. But uh, we, we don't recognize it in the inverse. When we're up against that 20%, we think it's zero and it's drawing dead. Um, I, I think that, like, and I know that, you know, you're a big... Uh, well, actually, I might have been the one to turn you on to, Jocko Willick. Extreme ownership. Yeah, which I, I know that you buy heavily into and so do I I think it is I think it is that light switch that flips in your mind and allows you to acknowledge like where we fail as biological creatures who aren't built for certain things and then where we actually can have control So you
2: take that line of thought even deeper because I went further and I said okay, so he's going to have a better hand now what? The two questions the two answers that I got to that question because everybody's a little bit different but one guy his deepest fear when we went down this line was I'm an unlucky person Yeah. and variance is just not going to play fair for me. Yeah, yeah. The sure. other guy says, I don't trust myself to be able to consistently make these rational decisions under fire. Right. So that one's a little more interesting actually. To for me, sure. Cause it's solvable. And it goes back to the confidence thing that you were saying too, mm-hmm. where it's almost becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you give credibility to the thought that you are not someone who's able to think rationally under pressure, well, suddenly you've just kind of sealed yourself off in that paradigm where that is a fear that now will take over during performance.
1: Yeah, that'll be the self-sabotage that exists for, for the uh, eternity. I guess, um, what, what's your resolve then?
2: I think we need to approach the association with risk at a core level. So what that means to me is if we take those two perspectives from those players, I'm either unlucky or I just don't trust myself. The core fear, if we take that all the way, is that they're afraid they're going to go broke because of those deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is... The actual reality is they
1: will go broke because of those deficiencies. If they
2: hold the belief in those deficiencies, they will. Because we know how self-sabotage works. What I want to do is actually prove logically to people that the risk that they think they're assuming by investing in actual profitable spots... That the subconscious doesn't want to acknowledge is profitable. The risk they think they're assuming by doing that is much, much less than the risk of throwing their hands up and saying, "I'm not going to play," yeah. or "I'm not going to call."
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, so how much? How much of that then? I guess, do you think like distills down to discipline versus uh, like some other form of mental training? Because from my vantage point, I think that the the greatest resistance is the idea that um, that there's a path to change right it's not so much that the path isn't obvious it's resisting the acknowledgement that 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 path could even exist and then once somebody's eyes are open to it it's a resistance of what it will take to actually go down that path my favorite conversation to have
2: lately is this um, and it's It's a skill, I think, to be able to paint a picture of someone's best self for them using imagination a little bit. But I like to just say like, look, man, if I have a guy in front of me, I'll say five years from now, if you played your cards right, literally, you would be in a place where you're beating high stakes. You have financial freedom. Your relationships are probably better. And you're thinking more rationally across the map. And he'll say, yeah, you know, like if I... If I did that for five years, if I followed rational steps, every step along the way, I could do it. And then I just try to reverse engineer that and be like, okay, so what is actually the, the catch point for you? Cause we just, we got there, we got to the end point. Now I'm trying to reverse engineer it for you. Where does it seem either unlikely or like too much work? And he'll usually say something like, you know, I just don't want to put in a year of hard work. It's too difficult. And that's when I like to deliver this lethal blow and be like, you know what? I think your life is very difficult as it is. Yeah. You perceive the learning process to be difficult because it's gritty. And I understand that a lot of these guys haven't been trained for grit, which I think is a huge thing that we need to figure out how to train for. Yeah. But if you tell me that a year of hard work to get you on a very, very clear trajectory towards success is more difficult than staying in the feudal territory that you're in right now, well, then there's only one thing left to talk about. Why do you still have hope? Right. Have you not had enough time suffering in your paradigm with whatever methodology you've been d- using that hasn't given you results yet? Do you need more time? And if he tells me he needs more time, he's going to get more time. Yeah. I step away very quickly in these conversations if somebody, if I sense that they're not available to the upgrade. But if somebody says, I don't want more time, my life is very desperate at this stage, I relate to that person a lot and there's a deep connection in that moment. I say, You got to get on the train.
1: Yeah. Right and, now, and here's the thing, and, and this uh, I understand very well. Um, you know, just going through sport and and failing over and over and over again, you you kind of get a callus to this kind of stuff. The way I see it is that human beings they they portray a life that wants to avoid suffering, but the reality is that they really steer into complacency and just want to mitigate the suffering. They have a certain level of tolerance of suffering that they're willing to take on day in and day out for the rest of their life. What they're not willing to do is front load all of that suffering in order to never suffer again. And it's kind of a crazy uh, way of framing it because like in a lot of ways, like this quote unquote suffering is just like stress. But it's also something that like, I think is very avoidable and can be trained out. I, I think that we're both big proponents of of Jocko Willick. He, uh, kind of has this, these two separate paradigms. Uh, one is just heavily rooted in discipline and the other one's heavily rooted in extreme ownership. Um, and the first one is uh, you know a YouTube video that uh, I, I love to reference just called Good. And it's him constantly being told by his subordinates, like, we have this problem, we have this problem, every, the world is falling or the sky is falling, right? And him just always responding with good, right? Just this hardcore cold acceptance of to live is to suffer, and I'm gonna be more elite at that suffering than anyone else in my surroundings. My guys that
0: worked for me, he he would call me up or pull me aside with some major problem, some issue that was going on, and he'd say, boss, we got this and that and the other thing. And I'd look at him and I'd say, good. And finally one day he was telling me about some issue that he was having, some problem, and he said, I already know what you're gonna say. I said, well, what am I gonna say? He said, you're gonna say good. He said, that's what you always say. When something is wrong and going bad, you always just look at me and say good. And I said, well, yeah. When things are going bad, there's gonna be some good that's gonna come from it. Didn't get the new high-speed gear we wanted, good. Didn't get promoted. More time to get better. Oh, mission got canceled? Good. We can focus on another one. Didn't get funded. Didn't get the job you wanted. Got injured. Sprained my ankle. Got tapped out? Good. Got beat? Good. You learned. Unexpected problems? Good. We have the opportunity to figure out a solution. That's it. When things are going bad, don't get all bummed out. Don't get startled. Don't get frustrated. If you can say the word good, guess what? It means you're still alive. It means you're still breathing. And if you're still breathing, well, then now you still got some fight left in you. So get up. Dust off, reload, recalibrate, re-engage, and go out on the attack.
2: That's the paradox to me is that when I mentioned before that the most powerful thing we might actually be able to get out of the whole poker project is figuring out how to train people for grit. Mm -hmm. To me, that might be one of the most important things because... When we do questionnaires, um, like we're collecting data on mindset at yeah. this stage with yeah, yeah. the amount of people that we're able to talk to. And what is fascinating to me is that there are certain players who simply won't accept not being able to arrive at an answer. Right. And there are certain players who be like, I got close enough and to get the actual answer to this or to go deeper with one more question about mindset, that's just a little bit too painful today get it off my plate. Yeah. The high performer says, I'm finding this solution no matter who I have to ask or no matter how much time I have to spend. And I think there is a fundamental difference in how those two players are wired. Now, I don't want to be the person that says that that's DNA. Right. I have too much faith in humanity to say that I can't provide someone with a, with a perspective that could potentially make that change from low performer to high performer. So what I'm so interested in is finding what the perspective is that the guy with grit, the high performer, who doesn't accept that he can't find the answer, he's going to push on until he finds it. What perspective is he operating from that gives him that type of grit? And I think far and away, it's that he has a better macro
1: vision over where it maps to. Right. So I, I think that this is where the the concept of extreme ownership comes in, right? And uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar, uh, you know you can check out jocko's ted talk on this or read his book which is fantastic but it it's it's constantly pushing the boundaries of floors and ceilings right and that's a hard thing for us to frame so it's a difficult it's difficult to get out of your day in day day in and day out paradigm where your ceiling for the day is going to be to you know find 100 dollars on the ground or to make a little extra money or to ha- have a better experience with a loved one whatever right it's it's going to be uh tethering on getting outside of of your your normalcy your default by maybe like five or ten percent that's going to be a day in day out like extreme ceiling something really fortunate happens to you but it's rarely going to be life-changing and the same holds true for the floor for the vast majority of people the their floor any given day is that they're going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed they're going to have a shitty day, someone's going to break up with them. Like, there are going to be these little uh, life-altering things that are just never really going to impact them long-term, right? So they never take ownership of the extremes. And whenever they find themselves in a real adult situation where it's time to step up and it's time to be, you know, somebody that others can look to and say, like, that's the type of person I want to be, they fail. And they fail because they've never even framed these paradigms. They don't know what to do in a burning building because they've never even considered this thought process, right? They've never even thought about the idea that they may put themselves in a scenario where they're just gifted $10 million. They've never looked outside the comfort of their own four walls. And, and I think like that lack of extreme ownership when put into a chaotic environment like poker, where all the pressure is on you to push micro-edges. We're talking about you make your money at the end of the day on 1% to 5% edges, right? You don't make them by being 80-20 favorites over and over. You're pushing a micro edge over and over and over and you're beating it down with volume. And fundamentally speaking, people are just cracking across the board.
2: Under the pressure of whatever distortion is created by a, a fundamental misunderstanding in the investment model. Yeah. I think what what you're saying about you know what would you do in a burning building to me that's like what are you going to do if you drop 20 buy-ins right that's exactly even, have you thought about what exactly. type of bankroll management adjustment you should make if that occurs right have you prepared before you even inserted yourself before you even dropped 20. Yeah. did you know what your bankroll was yeah, and did, you have, did you do variance calculations to see right. how likely it would be that you drop 20 and what happens next because if you don't do that you're putting yourself in a situation where when that happens and It creates massive uncertainty because you haven't thought about it. Now you're making decisions under a great degree of distortion. If you had it mapped out, well, that's when you just lock in. Like ownership to me is the ability to have most possibilities mapped out of what could happen, including the bad ones. And when any of those things happen, I revert to my plan and I don't overthink it. I
1: lock in and I just pump. That's where we need to be creating framework, not under some micro analysis of poker, in my opinion, right? One of the, one of the first exercises, I, I've spoken about this a bunch. I, I think we even like put a video out about it, but like one of the first exercises I take students through is trying to make them understand these extreme cases, right? I personally went through it. I want a 5 million downswing, something unfathomable when I first started this game. When I, when I jumped into the, the big game for the first time, I had 80% of my own action playing 100, 200, 20K min, and I was only worth like a half a million at the time. But I thought it was like a one-off, and like what's the worst that could happen? Basically, the way I framed it is I'm taking 60K, worst thing that happens is I lose that, and then I have to like reevaluate, right? And that's just flawed, but not gonna be that painful. Then I get regular invites, and now all of a sudden it's like, okay, Clearly, I need more money. The stakes are getting raised. I'm going to be playing very often. I can't be this exposed. So I went out and I found a backer and we worked out a deal where I had skin in the game, but um, you know, we were operating off of what I felt like was a short roll. You know, it was like we had 500K to begin with and we're playing 300, 600. And this is insane. And then you know, as variance went my way and I was able to grow the role and get it to around 2 million, the, the obvious correction phase came in. And now all of a sudden we start losing. But at this point, I demonstrated that I'm a favorite in the game. So now more capital is being raised, and eventually we get the capital raise all the way up to five million, which is so necessary. This is when it's all said and done. We're playing 3612 regularly with hundred k minimum buy-in. I'm averaging more like a two fifty buy-in. So like we're talking about like maybe twenty buys, twenty buy-ins, right? Twenty five if we're if we're buying a little bit shorter, whatever the case may be. Do you know how easy it is to go on a twenty five buy-in downswing? People yeah. look at this like five million dollar downswing, and they're just like. That's the most egregious thing I've ever heard in my life. It's like, oh really? Have you ever lost twenty five thousand in five ten before? It's not that crazy. I mean,
2: I can tell you exactly how likely it is. But we would need to know your win rate. And that's what I'm talking about is right. like there are programs available that can prepare you for inevitabilities like this. Yeah. You got guys saying, like, there's my the the thing that bothers me the most, I guess, doesn't even really bother me, but it's it's like an indication that I don't want to Work with someone anymore. Yeah, guy comes on program, says, "I'm in this. I want this. Let's do it." I understand what I'm biting off by getting into this. I say, "Okay, we put him on stake. First twenty buy and downswing." Message comes in, moves my passion for the game. Yep, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Yep. And that's a moment where I got to say, "Look, man, we mapped this out, and you knew what you're getting yourself into. If you don't understand that a million hands from now, this is going to happen multiple times. Sure. This isn't a random event." As it's not a rare event. Right. It's it's definitely random, but it's not rare. Right. And it's going to occur over and over again. And if you can't handle that, then you're contradicting the statement that you made when you joined program. Yep. And that might be true. Maybe you're realizing that this is not the industry for you. But don't leave here thinking that there's some better option in terms of a career. Like oh, so many guys leave and they're like, oh, I'm just going to do this other thing, this this fitness thing, and they think that these same problems aren't going to present themselves. Like, that's the thing that I feel like is so necessary to raise awareness around is like, you can pick a lower volatility model. You can go do something that makes less money and potentially you get a steady paycheck. But realistically, you got into poker largely because you saw the financial freedom available. Like, largely, you think that it's worth being in this industry for the money. If you quit poker and pick a lower paying job that does not ever map like a lot of people are quitting poker and going back to the cubicle job yep. thinking that the cubicle job maps to Same financial trajectory. freedom right. you just did the riskiest thing you could have you could have ever done mm-hmm. by sacking up and quitting and committing yourself to a paradigm that literally doesn't map yep but it feels safe yep so i want to raise more awareness around the fact that the mind has a very very funny way of averting risk in its head the, the upfront risk of continuing with the volatile poker career or pushing through the downswing, we, we say no to that and we pick up something that on the surface seems more steady, but never maps. It's, and, and that's where long-term vision comes in. It's
1: emotional, man. It's all, it's all predicated on emotion. Like I said, people are willing to take on a certain amount of pain and suffering, right? But as that pain and suffering compounds, you just look for exits, even if those exit strategies don't make any sense. The thing that saved me the most on the back end of this 5 million downswing was that I've been here before only for one tenth or one 100th one of the stakes, whatever the case may be, right? I've gone through hundreds of thousands of dollars downswings that are just natural. And I recognize like, as long as my funding still has faith in me, and as long as I'm still able to put my butt in that seat, I'm going to climb out of this. And so I worked. And I tried to draw the emotion out of it because I got to tell you, man, there were days you can't get out of bed. It's just like, I can't keep losing houses every time I sit down. So let me
2: ask you that then. What is the thing, as someone who's been through a rock bottom, what is the thing
1: that gets you out of bed when that's going on? Because there's people who didn't get out of bed. It's, it's, it's the mapping of the long term, right? It's the self-confidence and understanding what this hole looks like when you zoom way, way out. So next question for, for me would be, how
2: much of that is a future projection of where you could be at and how much of that is remembering that you literally can't go back because it's too painful to go back
1: um both i i think it's for sure both without the without the confidence in the future i I think that the fear of going back doesn't really matter because you'll just never get out of the emotional state you'll just be too invested in every single hand every single pot every single day every single week right and you'll crumble you'll you'll literally crack under the pressure but if you know what you're capable of if you've been at the top in some capacity and you recognize that there is a path to getting there again now it just comes down to your training and it comes down with you know i I credit elliot a lot where it was like i met him at the right time and he was able to kind of see through it's like yeah this is a normal bout of variance you're going through but you're compounding it and i can help you get out of that mindset it's like okay this is great and one of, the, one of the best things that came out of that was me having a much better understanding of the market and the fundamental uh, investment strategy that's taking place. So one of the thought experiments that I always run my students through, like one of the first things that I challenge them with when they come to me, because I think that that extreme ownership is lacking in most and they don't recognize the polls, is if you woke up tomorrow dead broke, not a cent to your name, how would, you, how would you take your next step? How would you go from zero to 1,000, right? How would you go zero to 5,000? And they almost never have an answer, right? Uh, if they do, it's, it's some sort of faith in some skill set that they have. Mm. The ones that I'm most interested in are the ones that just say, I'll work, right? They just have like some grit to them where it's just like, I don't know. I don't know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find a way. Exactly. And that to me is like, okay, you're ready for this next question. Now... Because this is another big point of resistance that I think people go through is they think that if they just had funding and they just had money. The amount of comments I get where it's just like, if I had somebody giving me $5 million, I'd smash that game. It's like, sure, let's, let's pretend that's true. So I run through the second part of the thought experiment. And I say, okay, now you think that your lack of success is due to lack of opportunity. What if you just had a million dollars dropped in your lap tomorrow? What's your path to 10 million? Show me, show me the business plan. Show me the idea, show me the investment strategy. Let's assume that it's poker, right? Show me how you're gonna turn 100,000 into a million. Show me how you're gonna turn a million into 10 million. Let's assume it's a lemonade stand. What are you gonna do to run this business in, in profit, right? And they just fundamentally fail because they love the idea of having financial freedom and they think that it takes all the stress and worry away, but they don't recognize the responsibility that actually comes with trying to grow wealth from a seed. And I think deep down
2: if we could experience both realities. Again, I like to use this this visualization of like there are very very there are very many versions of yourself. And I'm trying to get somebody in contact with their best version, which is way out here. We're over here. If you could actually experience what it feels like in your body to be over here for even five seconds sure that might actually be the most powerful leverage that someone could have to try to pull toward that end reality so what i'm interested in on the same uh train of thought as the guy who says i don't know i would work yeah i asked a student a question the other day and this was a spontaneous thing that happened and i've been working on this thought problem a little bit more he's someone who just wasn't on a proper schedule the logistics of his life just really didn't map towards being a successful poker player he had to get it together yeah yeah. we talked about it for a while and eventually i said this was the kid that said like you know i think it'd be difficult to work for a year and i was like i think your life is very very difficult right now you've been on program for 18 months and you're at micros yeah like, you've got responsibilities that you can't even attend to because you're at He's micros. He's numbing, though. He's
1: just passing the time playing these stakes day in and day out. And on. I
2: think it's coming from a lack of perspective. For sure. So
1: what I said is, okay,
2: let's play a game. If I had a green button in front of you right now, and I said, you hit that green button, and it is guaranteed that you will warp to the utopian reality where you are a high-stakes player and everything's golden. Guaranteed. Yeah. But... You will have to endure 10 seconds of the most excruciating pain of your life. Do you hit the button? He says, absolutely. So I said, okay, that's, that's cool. What is the amount of time where you will no longer hit the button? Right. He thinks for a while. And he says, um, I think it's probably like a year. So then I, I took that same thought problem and I asked a few different people. And the guy that I'm most interested in yeah. is the guy that says, I'm hitting the fucking button no matter how long it takes. Yeah. If I'm guaranteed to get there, I'm hitting the button. And what that guy tells me is he's in enough pain. Right. It's a combination of having proper perspectives passed down to you, and being in enough discomfort in your current position that the synergy of those two actually creates real change. Yeah. If you only have perspectives but your situation's still kind of okay, I don't think you budge. Right. If you lack total perspective and your situation is really shitty, I don't think you can really budge either. I think you need some combination of both.
1: And, and I think clarity helps a lot too. Uh, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit because I think this is a good, a good point to bring it up. But I, I think the other thing that is lacking and plaguing the community as a whole and why uh, even if they can get to the mindset that you're talking about or, or maybe they are just suffering too much, why they still continue to fail is the path is so muddled and it's so abundantly unclear. We've never had more training available in the history of poker, and we've also never had more bullshit to weed through in order to try to get some little golden nugget that's worth anything. You know, that kind of brings me, uh, I guess, I don't know if we wanna call this an announcement or what, but you and I have decided to kind of partner up a little bit, and we are you know, basically creating uh, a massive free platform for people to get from the beginner stage to the stage of thinking in handverse range.
2: I love handverse range. No, I mean just to bring some context to it. I was on the beach, Matt texted me. He's like, I think we should talk. Come over Tuesday. I showed up. The conversation was probably in your head going to last longer than it did. Yeah. But about 5 minutes into it, I think I led and said, "We're taking our packs off the market. I don't even feel like selling them anymore. I want to focus on specifically free mindset content." and some pre-technical stuff because I really feel like that's where my passion is, is talking directly to people. Yep. And I don't want any confusion right now that I really, really want to see a industry-wide upgrade in the way people think rationally. And the way people just deal with pressure because I've, I feel most connected to the moment where someone actually sees that there's another way or yeah. that they could make the upgrade. Yeah. And I don't think it's cliche. I think it's actually... The realest thing that's going on that is a little bit uncomfortable to get underneath the surface of and start making progress with, but it's necessary. And I think that the industry has proven that it's necessary at this point. We are three years into a solver era that is not producing fulfillment for the industry. Right. It's not variance. Agreed. How long do we need before we sack the model? And I just feel like. There was nothing special about people who already punted the GTO model. They might have just worked a little bit harder. I think it's a combination of two things. They they worked a little bit harder with the tools to burn themselves out and trusted that they actually did everything that the tool could provide. Mm-hmm. Like that's requiring some self-trust. Because I remember when I was like the day that I was like, no more, can't go down the GTO rabbit hole anymore. I was pretty confident that I was on the leading edge of working with those tools in the best way that they could be worked with. And there was some humility involved where I had to say, I can't memorize all this. It's just not for me. Um, And the other side of it is, do you have the grit necessary to do what it takes to actually make the shift? I think it's both.
1: Yeah, I think that that's what the student needs to bring to us. And I think what we're offering to bring to them finally, which is, in my opinion, desperately lacking in the community, is just a streamlined A to Z approach of, okay, figure out where you insert into this learning path and then just follow it through, right? It's like, we're going to have everything from like bottom up type of learning where it's literally simple things like equity versus EV. This is pot odds. This is, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically like equity trainers, whatever the case may be. Very simplistic baseline math that everybody should have some fundamental knowledge of. And then we're just going to build off of that. So if you already understand the math, then insert yourself in the middle of the path. If you already uh, understand like basic hand versus hand comparisons, then insert yourself later on down the path. And if you're already at the hand versus range thing, then come to the streamlined path that we have behind the paywall. But the end of the day, the main focus that we're going to have is solving the problem of streamlining the absolute path that people should be pursuing rather than solving the micro problem of this is what you should be doing with a certain subset of hands from a certain position. If we could think, if we if we can only teach people how to think rationally, I think we have succeeded at whatever we're totally trying to agree. do. Totally agree. That That's literally my mission uh, in starting this company and it goes far beyond poker. Poker is just like the best testing ground in my opinion. We didn't even talk about this much, but... In
2: 30 seconds, I could kind of prove why the GTO approach is very, very silly. The data shows that the market is extremely imbalanced. In any other investment industry, if we were dealing with a heavily imbalanced market, investors would not be trying to memorize optimal strategies. Right. It's a
1: great, great point.
2: Handverse range accomplishes exactly that. Handverse range is the
1: solution to that. It's practical, it's easy to implement. It aligns, It aligns with your incentives and it allows for the adaptation of any environmental information that you're accumulating throughout the course of your session. We need
2: to touch on that because it's the main objection to handverse range. The fear of adopting an exploitative strategy is that it is too easy to be re-exploited. Right. Rational thought allows you to use clear observation of information exchange in order to be able to counter your opponents that you've shown information to. Right. So... I don't like how the conversation ends at, well, if you're playing hyper-exploitative, suddenly you're exploitable. Why do we end the conversation there? Why aren't you capable of using confidence, rational thought, whatever you want to call it, yep. to identify the information exchange that took place and make an adjustment so that you're not left wide open?
1: The in problem the next- is, is that up until recently, uh, this whole concept was just highly dismissed. And, uh, you know, I know this was one of the big things that Polk was super anti-against. I remember specifically a video he put out about circular logic and the whole leveling war of like, well, he knows that I know that he knows that I know. And it's like, yeah, if you dumb it down to something that simple and elementary, then yeah, you're right. Like it's a silly game to play. There's a better approach. But that's not what we're trying to say, right? What we're trying to say is that each actor in this environment is unlikely to be acting perfectly rationally. And the imperfections in their rational thought or, or lack thereof are exactly how we all are exploitable in some sense. So the second you enter the arena, you're already exploitable. Why not maximize your upside rather than worrying about protecting your downside so much? Again, I think it goes back to the inability
2: to actually train the subconscious how to interpret risk sure. properly. Yep. And to me, it's so clear that somebody who cares about making money should be playing hand versus range. And yep. I question the industry at this stage as to how many people truly if, if if we did a poll, private poll, how many people would pull the lever that they want to look smart in a forum as opposed to actually make money? Right. Because handverse range is making money yep. faster. For sure. There's no question about that at this stage. Right. Like the data of the people using handverse range strategies is surpassing people
1: who are coming into the industry using GTO at an exponential rate. I'll let you in on a little secret too. All of those guys that you're watching on High Rollers, all of the best in the absolute world, they're operating in a hand-versus-range paradigm. That's what they've... I mean, don't get me wrong. They, they understand range-versus-range better than anybody else in the world. But the way that they simplify that strategy is to be able to pluck out certain groupings of their hand classes and just play them in a hand-versus-range capacity. They're at least able to
2: rationally toggle through different incentive points if you disrupt the equilibrium right this may be the real skill of the best players in the world is that and i think that's why it's being played on a tournament platform instead of cash that makes sense but if you look at the players who are really really good at you know somebody says like i remember when jungle man was coming up people were talking about his game and like the forms were going off and i remember seeing this term the guy has world-class calibration. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that thrown around a lot. And I didn't really have a context for what that meant back then. I knew it probably meant he does a lot of really little things correctly. Sure. It's about it. But I think realistically what's going on is the community has latched on to a number of very smart, very good players who were using solvers more effectively and thinking more rationally yeah. with the concepts that they gleaned from the solvers mm-hmm. once they're in the arena. And for people to think that that's something that they can just
1: memorize, that's a really incomplete perspective. That's as impossible to mimic as uh, trying to mimic the complexity of the entire game tree itself. Which is basically what people are
2: trying to do. Like, literally, people think that when Sauce makes a video, if I could just memorize what he's doing in that video, well, then I can execute and expect to gain that win rate. Right. But again, you put them in some variation of that pattern. And they self-destruct because the rational mind hasn't been trained to calibrate right
1: the way i like to frame it is that the best in the world understand the way the solver quote unquote thinks rather than trying to understand the output the solver spits i would say that's almost that that's far more
2: true than anything else that i would be able to bring off the top right now
1: yeah um to end on a bit of a lighter note you had a decent summer I got a little lucky. Was this, was this your first real-world series,
2: like volume-wise? The first one that I played a bunch of events. Yeah. Okay.
1: And obviously, is this your biggest tournament score? For sure. What was it? How much? What, so for those who don't know, you got second place in the 3K 6MAX. 3K 6MAX. Best Beautiful my, tournament.
2: Yeah. I loved all the 6MAX events. Obviously, they're the best. Fired at the 10K. Um, at the end, and bricked it, but was How really... How soft
1: was that 10K6 match? was really happy that I played it. I like, was astonished, man. Yeah, I couldn't. I had Freddie Deep at my table. This is no joke. This is the best story that I... I'll tell the story for decades. He opens the cutoff. The big blind defends. It comes ace, queen, 10, rainbow. Uh, big blind checks. Freddie bets, like, 15% pot. Like, literally one blind. I, he might have bet less than a blind, and they forced him to complete it. And the big blind calls. And he just goes, dealer, dealer, stop, give him the pot. And he mucks his hand. (laughs) Big blind tables, ace, jack of spades. Like, talk about clairvoyance. (laughs) This guy just notes. Weird. But yeah, that's how soft the event was.
2: Six max tournaments are really nice live. You get extra leg room, which is huge. I think it helped my mental game. And it's the, I'm a six max player in cash. So there's something about just being totally integrated with my starting range is when we're deep. It's a different feel. What do you and... think the
1: biggest flaw for the collective is in six max? Because I have a very specific answer that I think is abundantly true.
2: Probably not calling enough.
1: So I think it's uh, they overadjust adjust their preflop ranges. I think they think because they're shorthanded that somehow that adjusts the, 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 the quality of hands that they're able to play. Or, like, the percentage of hands that they're able to play. But when
2: really it's just, like, your MP just plus two or yeah. every time.
1: Yeah, like, your hijack range is still your hijack yeah. range. Um, I, and it's, it's something that I've noticed throughout the years because, like, when I get into shorthanded cash games, my ranges stay the exact same as they were nine-handed because I'm always the loosest player at the game in the game anyway. And I see all these other ranges, like, catching up. Yeah. Where they just start showing up with, like, a bunch of trash in spots where they otherwise wouldn't. And they they overadjust to me thinking that I'm also wider.
2: I mean, everything is wider than it is in nine man, for sure, but it doesn't give you.
1: Well, it's wider than under the gun, under the gun one. For sure, but it doesn't two. mean
2: that suddenly in six max you can raise MP2 wider than you could in a nine man. Like the form. Right. You're not allowed to raise the button wider in six max right. than you are in nine man. Right. Like, exactly. This is ridiculous. Exactly. Um, but I mean, very, very little tournament experience on my behalf. I played you know, for a while with some good guidance, but like that would have been a few years ago at this point. And I just inserted myself into the series thinking like, okay, I've got a couple of really key edges. Um, I'm, I'm really good when there's, you know, some stack depth on the table. And I feel like I have a strong mindset. And I'm not going to buckle under pressure. So when I got deep in that 3K, I was just sort of like assessing things. I think I bagged, I bagged in second place on the night before the last day. So there was like 30 people left. The field was not all that good from what I, like, when I assess the field, like, I'm literally just looking around at, like, I'm trying to get reads on how, how much people have their lives together, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah, who's desperate? Like, it's... Who's desperate? Because they're going to
1: make that big hero fold, not the call.
2: And it's not hard to tell. It's not that hard to tell in life. And obviously, I have some biases, um, and I'm not trying to judge people on surface level, but...
1: No, talk your shit.
2: You can very much see when someone is emotionally conflicted and um, maybe risk averse or maybe went out drinking last night and they're punty or whatever. Um, But I went into that knowing that I was a very big underdog. If we got down to elite ICM calculations and stuff like that, Um, you know, my push fold ranges are, you know, not great. I can hold my own, but like I'm definitely an underdog at a good final table. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Sure. So I just sort of tried to come to an acceptance of that and tried to play my strengths and I noticed that the field was playing kind of punty late yeah. and I just made a decision that I think there's going to be ICM mistakes made in the direction of people over investing mm-hmm. so I don't really know what my what my baseline should be but I'm going to tighten up a little bit more and it was just a very it was a very rational calibration that I made um you know assuming that my observation was right that people were going to kind of get punty Yeah um and it worked out and you know maybe it was luck that a couple guys at the final table made some pretty bad icm plays but um felt pretty great to to take a quarter million out of that tournament knowing that i really um executed the game plan that i set out to go in with because there's so many times in my career where like i've punted off the chip lead like
1: Yeah, yeah of course man
2: like in Trust my me. but in I my in my, t- in my <laughs> 20s like you know i was the guy who had that issue and this was the first tournament where it's the I, falling off peak it's young man issue. young man syndrome yeah, yeah, straight yeah. up yeah. and 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 for the first time i felt like i was on the other end of that so when people like i came away from i was cashing the i was at the cage and one of my buddies was like what's the best part about this for you and i said i think it's that i'm on the other end of it yeah like yeah. i'm on the end of the guy who 's punting into me right instead of punting out off into someone like I yeah. waited till the last hand of that tournament to bluff my stack off, and I felt really, really good about that because I had opportunities sure. to call my stack off to, to to bluff it off the whole way through and i 'm not saying I played perfect, but I felt really good coming away from it, obviously with an above average result, um, but also just that I know what it 's like to punt and I know what it 's like to be composed, and I felt composed that day
1: is there And maybe you can't answer this because, uh, you make me look like an emotional roller coaster with how fucking robotic you are, but is, is there any better feeling than running deep in a tournament? No. And mostly because, well,
2: I I mean, the obvious thing is the laddering up effect is happening at such a dramatic rate, like the amount that you're making by laddering, um, is all Those are the biggest pots you'll ever play. It's like doubling much. the stakes, like every level. Right. Yeah. So there's that. Um, and then the really satisfying part, I mean, th- there's three parts. There's that that I just mentioned. There is being relatively certain that you're more emotionally stable than the other players at the table. So I'm deriving confidence and edge from from just observing those things. People compensating, trying to make conversation. You're picking up that they're just not okay with themselves and that's ultimately going to manifest in some sort of mistake. And then there's just the actual camaraderie effect of everybody's having a good time. And that is an aspect of it that I enjoy. Yeah. Like for some reason, I mean, I've, I've never been at a, well, I've been at one final table, so sample size for the loss, but I find it hard to believe that anybody's bitter at a final table.
1: Yeah. I I think that's fair. Um, I, I, I noticed that environment in high stakes cash a lot. It's more jovial than I think people think.
2: I like that, though.
1: Yeah, as as much as everybody wants to win, as competitive as it is, when you get into that environment, very rarely does anybody have their rent money on the table. Mm. And if they do, it's me. So it's like I'm willing to play the heel a little bit. Uh, And generally speaking, like, for as much money as changing hands, um, and I wouldn't say that everybody's friends, but it is kind of like a boys' club environment uh, and, you know, you know, it, it's a little restrictive, I guess, in that sense. But there, there, there are women who play in the game. Farah plays, Marley plays. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot more of almost like a locker room environment than it is your standard two five five ten game where you just have some twenty something staring you down mm. as if like you know the world's gonna end if he doesn't win this pot.
2: How obligated do you feel to make conversation? Well, in man, these type you're, of games. You're
1: opening a can of worms. Did, did you see my Twitter last week?
2: I heard about it, but I want like the one minute summary. But
1: I don't want. <laughs> not to... at all. The the one minute summary is not at all. I feel no need to be on. I think that it's not a dog and pony show, whether it's televised or not. Um, I, I think if you pulled the people in the big game, the thing that they appreciate about me most is that I handle my losses well. I'm a lot of action. And that when I speak, it carries weight. Mm. Whether that is through wit or through uh, importance of whatever the topic at hand is. I don't just spew verbal diarrhea. And there's always one of those guys in the game, but like there isn't a need for it in my opinion anyway. I like that answer. Uh, I think I'm similar in that way. All right. So let's put a bow on this thing. You're going to be joining me again next week while uh, chin is off in the DR tanning his coconuts, sipping a Mai Tai, sitting next to big poppy somewhere. Um, I'm actually going to be heading to Florida after we record. So I'll be sitting on the beach tanning my coconuts for a minute and then trying to win this 5K that I got third in two years ago. GL. Thanks, man. You're not coming? You're sticking around here? I'm going to
2: stick here and go to some clubs, work on my... Young man syndrome. Yes. (laughs) All
1: right, man. Really appreciate you joining me. That's going to wrap it up here from the South Y headquarters. Tune in next week. Thanks, Conrad.